Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is a preview of our latest episode. As we announced recently, Slate, like many media organizations, has been hit hard by the economic downturn caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. We need your help to continue producing this show and all the other work we do at Slate. So we're asking you to sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program. It's just $35 for the first year, and it will go a long way toward supporting us at this crucial moment. Sign up at slate.com slash hit parade plus, and you'll get to hear this and every episode of Hit Parade in full. That's slate.com slash hit parade plus. Thanks. And now your episode preview. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 23 years ago, in the early summer of 1997, a team of women mounted a tour that was the first of its kind. It was a traveling festival that defied conventional wisdom. The idea that no concert tour should have more than one or two women on the bill. This tour would be all women and woman-fronted bands. They called it Lilith Fair. Founded by Canadian singer-songwriter Sarah McLaughlin, Lilith Fair would prove a blockbuster success, the highest-grossing touring festival of the year on its very first run. And why should that have been surprising? After all, Lilith's main stage acts were all certified gold. Or platinum. or multi-platform. At the time, Lilith Fair was received as the consummation of a decade and a genre, 90s rock, that had been very good to women performers. Many of the biggest acts on the radio and the billboard charts at the time were women, even the ones who weren't at Lilith Fair. Moreover, when Lilith expanded its roster to include artists at the forefront of R&B and hip-hop, those women were platinum sellers too. I feel the wind. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, nine, but ten, the great and sad irony was this. At the very moment Lilith was selling out venues nationwide, radio, rock radio in particular, was pivoting away from women performers. It was a story as old as rock and roll itself. 
even as generations of women had helped shape what rock became, inspiring countless artists in their wake. They were frequently treated as footnotes or sidebars to rock history. And even after women released some of the 1990s most acclaimed albums, and some of the decade's biggest hits. They still spent the 90s convincing radio programmers and tour promoters they could sell tickets and keep listeners from changing the station. This was the perception Sarah McLaughlin and her traveling festival were aiming to correct in 1997. For a few glorious summers, these women were proved right. Today on Hit Parade, we'll consider the women rockers, rappers, and iconoclasts of the 1990s, before, during, and after Lilith Fair. To be sure, generations of performers who happen to be female have said they are sick of women in rock being treated as a genre. And contrary to the conventional wisdom, the music of this period was far more varied than the stereotype of the soul-bearing diary lyrics singer-songwriter. But the women who banded together as 90s sisters in song made that stereotype moot the most undeniable way possible, by topping the charts. And that's where your hit parade marches today, the week ending July 5th, 1997, when Building a Mystery by Sarah McLaughlin made its debut on Billboard's Modern Rock Chart, the same week her Lilith Fair Festival played its first show at the Gorge Amphitheater in Washington State. One month later, McLaughlin would have the top single artist album in the country, while Lilith sold out venues across the nation. It was a triumph, the culmination of a decade of female success in popular music. But like many culminations, it was closer to the end of something than the beginning. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. To listen to the full Hit Parade episode, please go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at chabacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. 
my colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.